Hello and welcome to Filmwalk. This is Glenn. I'm here with Daniel. Hello. And tonight we're going to be reviewing a pair of films that were uh, each the uh, toast of Sundance. I heard about them both back in January. Later on in the episode, we'll be reviewing the film Possessor from director Brandon Cronenberg. But first, we will be checking out a new sort of fairy tale mashup from director Brenda Chapman. And that film is Come Away. Every child has a fairy born just for them. Tinker's Bell was born for you. It's just a bell. She's in a hurry to grow up. He dreams of exploring new lands. Who are these dirty vagabonds? And what have they done with my children? This is the untold story of a brother and sister. Two kindred adventurers. Wait for me! Our Alice and our Peter. I am Pan, god of the woodlands, and these are my woods. Oh, oh, oh. Told you to pay your debt. We've seen the boss. How is he? He's still the boss, isn't he? The Lost Boys are your service. Girls' fingernails are black with dirt. We will make a lady of you yet. Alice comes with me. Rose, you shall pay your debt. I need more time. Take me away from here. Peter, don't let life drag you down. You just keep floating above it. That was from the trailer of Come Away, the new film from director Brenda Chapman, uh, who we uh, previously saw directing the film Brave, or rather co-directing that film. It is based on a screenplay from a first-time screenwriter, Marissa Kate Goodhill, uh, and is a sort of mashup and origin story of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll and Peter Pan by J.M. Barry, and it posits what if... Peter and Alice were siblings. We meet the pair. Uh, we have Peter, played by Jordan Nash. We have Alice, played by Kira Chansa, and played as an adult by Gugu Mbatha-Ra. And uh, they have a third sibling, David, played by Reese Yates. Their parents are Rose, uh, played by Angelina Jolie, and Jack, played by David Oyelowo. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and say, since we're mashing up headcanon here, that Jack and Rose are uh, just the happily ever after version of Jack and Rose from Titanic. So that was that was in my head the entire time uh, watching this film. And I would appreciate if you uh, if you stick with that narrative as we uh, as we review the film, Daniel. <laughs> I'll do my best. So, uh, yeah, Lucky Jack managed to survive his uh, sojourn aboard the Titanic floating door, and uh, and they uh, they lived happily ever after in old-timey London, they uh, where they back. were raising their three, they, their three they children. Took a, they took a ship back to England. Exactly, yes. And uh, they're, they're raising their three children, who uh, have a rich and imaginative inner life, which, um, I gotta say, that's what the movie sort of immediately... It starts off immediately with a tone of magical realism, because we see them playing in the woods, and we see their sort of swashbuckling adventure games uh, rendered as if they are real. We see the, the children's imaginations play across the screen. Um, you know, they're fighting with sticks, and we see them fighting with swords. Uh, they're throwing uh, They're throwing more sticks around and uh, and we see we see that's a spear flying through the air um, you know every little detail of this uh, we, we see that they find a wrecked derelict boat in the woods and and we see that it's it's a full-on miniature pirate ship for kids to operate mm-hmm. so um, that's kind of the the tone throughout this film is that these kids have the power of imagination uh, and uh, and that is what allows them to get by in an increasingly hostile world uh, even as they they uh, potentially want to escape to uh, to wonderlands or neverlands of their own making so Daniel, how much did you know about this film going in? Did you did you follow your rule of not even watching the trailer? Yeah, so I honestly I thought that this was the prequel to The Way Back with Ben Affleck that we saw earlier this ha. year. 
and I was really excited. And then uh, this movie happened, and I was less excited because, like, I could tell you, there are two things growing up I never cared about, and that was Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan. So not only did I barely get the references throughout the film, mostly with Alice in Wonderland, none of it was, none of it, like, tugged at the uh, nostalgia heartstrings. I never grew up with it. It was never anything, it was never a piece of canon that was important to me. So this movie kind of missed on that regard because I could give a shit about Peter Pan, <laughs> to be honest. Well, so, uh, I mean, the, the uh, you know, we millennials uh, have definitely seen at least one version of Peter Pan that uh, stuck with us, and that was Hook, which was sort of the uh, the tail end of the Peter Pan sandwich that is this movie, because this is the prequel where we meet Peter before he went to Neverland, and that was the sequel where we meet Peter after he grows up and uh, becomes Robin Williams. So uh, and then he goes back to watch Captain Hook stab a child in the heart. That, that happened. Uh, so the... Uh, this is a this is a sandbox that we've that we've at least been aware of many attempts to play around in. Uh, there was a film in two thousand four called Finding Neverland uh, with Johnny Depp as J M Barry, uh, based on apparently a real episode in Barry's life where he befriended and possibly had a romance with a uh, with a widow, uh, played by Kate Winslet and and her children. And in the course of telling stories to this family, he sort of came up with the idea for the characters of uh, of Peter Pan and of the Darling family. Uh, and this is kind of doing something similar to that. Now, I'm, I'm sort of with you in that Peter Pan, I was, I definitely had some affinity for growing up. I, I never, I've still never read the original uh, J.M. Barry, but I've seen many, many adaptations of it, uh, including uh, the the musical one from the 50s uh, that I watched many times growing up, um, the animated versions, uh, I think at least two different animated versions of it, as well as the movie Hook. So kind of being steeped in the Peter Pan lore helped me appreciate the film a bit. And those references definitely, uh, <laughs> definitely flew off the screen screen at me even as I was slightly rolling my eyes at the necessity for them. Alice in Wonderland, I would say my familiarity with it is a bit more loose and associated with me as an adult. I mean, I saw the Tim Burton adaptation uh, in 2009. Um, I saw a a weird cabaret version at uh, at college one time, so I'm sort of used to... I've seen a number of sort of quasi-revisionist... I've definitely seen multiple burlesque shows with characters from Alice in Wonderland as well. Any uh, Peter Pan burlesque shows? I have not seen that. I'm kind of with you in that even as I was watching this film, which has a just a host of powerhouse actors for all the adult characters, um, you know we have Angelina Jolie and David Oyelowo. Uh, we've got uh, we've got David Gyasi, my Cloud Atlas uh, alum. Shout out! Derek Jacoby shows up for one scene in this movie just to Michael be an King asshole. Is in this. <laughs> Michael Caine is in this movie. I couldn't believe it. And uh, David Gyasi in particular as as Captain James as he is down, but he's Captain Hook. Yeah. Um, this guy's ability to sort of be quietly menacing really worked for me in this film. And, and by and large, all the grown-ups' performances worked for me. The kids, kind of just being a list of checkboxes, I found myself enjoying their performances, but I found myself having a hard time grasping onto them as characters because uh, they were kind of just going through the motions. And the idea that these kids were sort of fluctuating back and forth between realizing they needed to grow up and realizing they needed to stay kids and realizing they needed to use the power of imagination to fight against grown-up forces in their lives... I, I don't know. It seemed it seemed completely inconsistent from one scene to another. They're, these kids are so spoiled. My God. Glenn, do you remember Pan's Labyrinth? Vividly. Do you remember why the necessity to go into the imagination land in Pan's Labyrinth was? As I recall, it was a need to escape the horrors of the Spanish Civil War. Correct. Fascism. Now, yes. the horrors of this movie are basically non-existent. You have a debtor father... Yeah, he's into gambling. That's about it. Like, those kids live such a 
spoiled life. Their parents just indulge all their whimsies and fancies. It's so annoying that they're like, oh, but now we have to grow up because life is hard. Life's not hard for you. What are you talking about? Well, the, the things that are hard for this family No, there's are... nothing that's hard for them. <laughs> Things that sort of strive for universality, which is, you know, they have to deal with the uh, they have to deal with various heartbreaks over the course of this film. And it seems like it's the sort of thing that, you know, a lot of children's films sort of dabble in darkness. They'll they'll talk about orphanages. They'll talk about uh, dead family members. And, uh, you know, for a movie that's supposed to be for kids, this movie went to some dark places because there were moments where we saw sort of an imagination world, how these kids were dealing with the with the darkness that that enters their world. and. As an adult, I'm just watching this and thinking, this is not good. None of this should be happening. We're watching a family cave in on itself. No, no, here. I guess this is Victorian England, right? I, presumably, I guess this is Victorian England time period-wise. Uh, I don't know. It's sort of well into the Industrial Revolution, so I was thinking more like uh, Edwardian, but... Uh... Okay, well, let's say, let's, say, let's say it's Edwardian, right? The yeah. fact that there's only one dead kid per family is kind of a boom <laughs> for them, okay? Yeah, that's privilege right there. Check it. Do we want to talk about, uh, do we want to get into spoilers for this? I honestly don't know what I would even say for spoilers I, for this film. I, I will I mean, say we, I, I liked uh, the, of the children actors, I really liked uh, the, the, the girl, Kira Chansu, who played Alice. I thought she was very charming. Uh, I liked all three of the kids, even though, you know, obviously two of them have, as, as the two named fairy tale characters, obviously have a bit more to do. Jordan Nash's Peter, uh, you know, his, even if, even if the through line of his character didn't quite work for me, this kid sort of as the uh, the one who of the of all of them doesn't want to grow up. I swear to God, there's a scene where he and the Lost Boys are all sitting around a campfire, and the Lost Boys are like, "We're at your service, uh, you know, Peter. You got to come to Neverland with us." And they straight up tell him that he's got higher levels of dream dust in him than other kids, <laughs> right? Uh, and like do. even even higher midi chlorians than Master Yoda. Right, you like, got some Scientology <laughs> vibes there. Yeah, I I could tell. Yeah. It, <laughs> I, I don't know. There were so many moments in this film in between all the great acting and in between a score that is doing a lot of heavy lifting here by John Debney um, to make to make all of this feel very, uh, very like like it means a great deal. I, I'm not going to remember this film later this week. I'm not going to remember this film tomorrow. I mean, I, I think of other sort of fairy tale adaptations that I've seen. Ava DuVernay's take on A Wrinkle in Time, I think, I think had greater ambitions than this. Whereas this really just felt like it was ticking checkboxes. It was they were both sort of going for uh, slightly revisionist takes on the source material and kind of trying to bring them into the modern era. And they both brought in some very talented actors to try and pull that off, as well as some some quite stunning visuals in both cases. Uh, but this film, unless they can come up with a better reason to exist than just we haven't had an adaptation of this source material in a while, these are always going to feel a little bit forgettable to me. And uh, you know, I, I cannot imagine a kid watching this. And not not I mean watching the final act of this, which goes at just a breakneck pace as it's trying to cram reference after reference mm-hmm. after reference into it, and thinking what the hell is going on? So the pacing, like the point I wanted to bring up, the pacing was the biggest issue for me because two thirds of the movie, I'm like, when is she going to Wonderland? Yeah, like when is she going down the rabbit hole? When the hell is Alice going to do her thing? And it happens like within 15 minutes of the ending, they're just like, they're doing a hundred meter sprint to get all the references in. I'm like, you guys had 90 minutes to play with and you spent time like with boat metaphors <laughs> and random scenes with adults. Like if the movie was supposed to be a mashup, the kids are what I thought the movie was supposed to focus on. Why do I care about all these scenes with Angelina Jolie as Rose and her sister? I don't like nothing's going to happen with them. 
So focus on the kicks. Let them go on to you know their their magical fairy side quest and let me see that magical reality play out. Otherwise, move on. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, all these sort of class warfare by proxy with uh, with Auntie Eleanor really didn't work for me. Anna Chancellor is fine, but she's not really doing much here. You know, it's kind of just just vague notions of what constitutes the lower classes. And you know, this movie does not address. Uh, it does not address the racial dynamics of its casting at all and how that would how that would play into you know 19th century england and that is fine. absolutely fine it was not a direction the movie needed to go in and the uh, you know the cast of this movie was was outstanding by and large but if you're going to throw in these sort of vague class dynamics you kind of just need to make the entire movie about that and that is really what i thought the movie was going to do i thought it was like oh, okay we've got peter pan and alice here and their siblings and they genuinely care about each other you know i buy their relationship at least and I think, okay, maybe the fact that these two are going to go off and have their own adventures is is only barely going to factor into the story. And this is just going to be a story about this family. And up until the last twenty minutes, when we just go at a breakneck speed through through a check a checklist of uh, of literary references, that is what I thought was going to happen. And uh, you know, mixing in Captain Hook and the connection between between that character and the other characters, I don't want to get too specific here. It was all kind of a nice touch. How like those characters integrating into the scene the scene in London worked for me. The idea that all the literary references were going to take place in some fantasy land off screen was less interesting to me than what we were getting for the first, you know, 60 minutes of this film. So um, really, yeah, the ending did not work for me. It's, uh, you know, I think it was trying to, it was trying to posit this idea of, okay, well, I guess Peter was the one who needed to go off to, to Neverland and Alice was going to go to Wonderland and then come back. But like, we already knew that was what was going to happen. We get a very strange framing device around the ending here that I don't even want to get into. But uh, when I think of the implications for the Peter Pan story beyond this, it's a little bit disturbing, <laughs> uh, right? Right? Like, why wouldn't why wouldn't Alice be mourning like uh, presumably the theoretical death of her brother? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I guess that the but uh, by, by the end, Alice comes home and they get to keep one child. So <laughs> and uh, they have one child sending gold home periodically, but. Yeah, I don't know. The it, this movie fully derailed for me by the end. I'm kind of there with you. Yeah, I if I like Pinger Pan or or Alice in Wonderland more, maybe I would have gotten like more out of it. Like the acting is fine. There's nothing wrong with the like. There's nothing, there's nothing bad about the acting. I, I thought it was all quite good actually. And for me, it was the pacing was a big issue, and I was just honestly confused as to what the movie wanted to focus on. Like they were trying to have like you know the trying to have their cake and eat it too, right? They were trying to two different kinds of movies, but they kind of failed at both. Yeah, it, the move, the resulting movie feels kind of disjointed. I think that is fair to say. Um, I I don't really know. I don't really have much else to say here. The, uh, the, the, the spoilers of this movie are not anything you can't guess yourself. So, yeah, that's... Daniel, any final thoughts about the movie? No, I think I kind of said it. I, I, I hope to see these actors and actresses in other films because they're all quite good. Just, uh, this, this one uh, didn't quite work for me. Yeah, for as much as I am nitpicking the ending of this film, I really was never I, I was never uninterested in what I was seeing here. And, you know, there's a lot that a good cast, good acting and good music can do for you. So I don't think that this is a movie you will find yourself not enjoying, but I would be very, very surprised if anybody's watching it more than once. Now, that said, you know, Hook became a became a weird genre defining part of my childhood. So. It's not impossible this could end up being some kid's favorite movie, but uh, I don't know. It goes to some dark places. 
I'm thinking in particular of a bottle with a stopper that says "Drink Me" on it, which was a direct, which which comes directly out of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, but is somehow even darker in this film than it was in the original. Yeah, yeah. She drank a bottle that says "Drink Me," and then she gets small, and then she eats like some sort of pastry and gets big. Yeah, and it's not like it matters at all in this movie, but the place that we're in before that scene happens is very, very dark. That's all I'm gonna say. So that is our review of Come Away. If you have any feedback on our discussion of Come Away, feel free to email us at filmwonknet at gmail.com, and you can check that one out this Friday. And now on to our review of Possessor. You have a very special nature. One we've worked hard together to unlock. Results are normal. Anything you want to flag? No. No, I'm fine. Mom! Hi, darling. How was your trip? Dull. Extraordinarily dull. Our next contract's a big one. The target is the CEO of the largest operation in the U.S. You'll be binding to Colin Tate. We can't afford any mistakes on this one. Ready? That was from the trailer of Possessor, the new film from writer-director Brandon Cronenberg, the son of David Cronenberg, which, uh, you know, I'll go ahead and acknowledge the Hollywood royalty angle here. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and assume that this guy, this is not his first film, uh, incidentally, but, uh, you know, I'm going to go ahead and assume that this guy making creepy horror is probably in no small part due to his father being in the same business. Um, I've now seen uh, Jennifer Jason Lee play uh, play creepy, mind-bending characters in two generations of Cronenberg sci-fi. Uh, she appears in this film as the as the uh, character of Gerder, uh, who is uh, who is the main character's boss and mentor. And uh, we also have Andrea Riseborough, who plays uh, Tasia Voss, who is a uh, basically a mind assassin. She uh, plugs herself into this crazy uh, hybrid MRI VR rig thing uh, where they stick a big silicone sleeve over your face and uh, and then you uh, you possess the body and mind of uh, a target that your goons have already grabbed and stuffed an implant into the brain of. And uh, that person then goes and carries out your will, which in this case is assassination for hire. We open on Holly Bergman, uh, played by Gabrielle Graham, who... Uh, when we first see her, 10 seconds into the film, she's sticking a very long needle into the top of her head. Uh, it's very graphic, and it kind of uh, tells you immediately if you'll be able to handle the, the sort of gore that will be on display in this film. Uh, adjusting a little dial and a little electrical gizmo, and uh, then she is, uh, she's right. She's ready to go. Goes to a party, wanders into through a series of absolutely gorgeous production design locales, uh, through a sort of dark and oddly pearlescent lobby, up a bright and colorful yellow staircase, and into a, uh, a weirdly cavernous party space uh, with a vaulted ceiling, and uh, walks directly across the room toward a lawyer who's uh, chatting with, uh, with some folks, and... Instead of shooting him with the gun they provided, she proceeds to stab him, uh, let's see, let me check my notes here, stabs him 21 times with a steak knife. Then she uh, pulls out a gun uh, in response to the instructions of an invisible voice and points it into her own mouth. She looks terrified, but successfully resists pulling the trigger. Um, And uh, then the police come in, and whatever force is controlling her successfully makes her raise the gun and the cops shoot her dead. So... That is basically the setup of this film, is that uh, this is some shadowy organization that has the ability to possess people and 
I mean, this is really a godlike power to manipulate reality here because you're not just having someone killed. Anybody can do that. You're you're having someone killed and writing the story of their death <laughs> in advance. And that story is a horror story. It's one of their loved ones suddenly deciding to murder them. <laughs> so that's that's what's on display here. Everyone in this film is a monster. <laughs> Andrea Riseborough as Tasha Voss is, is an absolute psychopath, and her mentor, uh, Jennifer Jason Lee playing Girder, is is also a violent psychopath. So that's the setup here. Absolutely no one is sympathetic here. It's just a matter of exploring what these monsters will do as they are carrying out their monstrous craft. So, uh, Daniel, I'll put it to you. Uh, what did you think of this film? Well, I can tell you I wasn't a fan of the grotesque violence, to be honest. Uh, that was a big turnoff for me. I thought the movie brought quite a few good ideas to the play, um, but I wasn't I wasn't really sold on, I guess, the initial premise because in a world where drones exist, this seems unnecessary and complicated and, and, and less effective, right? Like taking over somebody's body and committing an assassination seems like less work than just sending a drone out and killing them. So why this method? What is this company for? Like the... the there are certain questions that were posed but not really answered, and I, I liked I liked a lot of uh, of the the work when it came to the the struggle between the possessor and pe- possessee. Uh, I, I thought that I thought that was good. That, that was well balanced. And there was a moment in the film uh, after that first scene where uh, Tazia Voss is coming out of it, right, and there uh, she has to go through a collection of items to to you know basically determine whether or not she's her right she's her original self yeah because it's it's implied that it's possible the the host the person that she was possessing might have might have had some of their memories or some of their personality come back with right. with her into the real and then world they, they bring up a butterfly uh which uh, is, is important for later in the film you know that she shows remorse towards uh killing this butterfly as a kid but i just watched her stab a dude 20 sometimes with a steak knife so her showing compassion over the butterfly is something I would do, um, but I I was I, I kind of like I guess you know, save that little little bit of uh, information little nugget of knowledge for later. I'm like that's gonna come back because that seemed odd and. It's almost more of a memory of compassion yeah, than it is real compassion. But she does make a point of saying that she still feels guilty about it today. Right, so. and just I'm not a big fan of of. Uh, 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 the ultraviolence, uh, to quote a clockwork orange. Um, like, I don't enjoy those types of uh, scenes. I, it makes me not only squeamish, but just really turned off to anything that happens in the film. Like, I guess I, I don't like, I don't like watching it. And there's a lot of just really grotesque violence in this film to, to the point where I was turned off on every single character except for the cat. And I was just rooting for the cat to survive because I hated everything else. Um, I, I, I think, it, well, I think this movie really does put a lot of really interesting ideas, uh, at, at play. And I liked all of the, I guess the, the mind melt world that they kind of posit, right. That they, they show like, you know, flashbacks and memories competing with each other and who's in control. But there's a lot of, there's a lot in this film that just didn't work for me that I thought could have been fleshed out better. That seemed kind of silly. And I, I just wasn't a real, real big fan of the violence. That's fair. Um, I I'll admit I knew about the violence going into the film. Um, the you know the the surname Cronenberg brings a certain set of expectations, and I don't know how familiar you are with David Cronenberg's fil- uh, filmography, but 
grotesque body horror and violence are sort of par for the course for for Cronenberg the father. Um, Cronenberg the son, I've never seen any of his films. He did a film called Antiviral about eight years ago, which I never saw. Um, So I didn't really know what to expect here other than I heard this movie was quite grotesquely violent. Um, and it did not disappoint. Now, as far as comparing it to uh, to David Cronenberg's films, I would say that Brandon Cronenberg definitely has his own voice here. Um, what he is doing is uh, it's it's a bit more of the he does a lot more with lighting and color. He does a lot more with sort of sort of music video style editing, like very some some quick cuts back and forth. He'll also just sort of fuck with your sense of reality a little bit because he'll he'll have especially with this film in particular, it's unclear at times, whether we're reviewing memories, whether we're reviewing speculation or fantasy uh, about what the character is about to do, and it might not be revealed until the end of the scene what has actually literally happened in the scene. So, uh, and this is as, you know, two characters are fighting for control of uh, of one body here. And that one body for most of the film is Colin Tate, played by Christopher Abbott. Um, Christopher Abbott played uh, Yosarian in the uh, Catch-22 miniseries this past year. That is basically my only familiarity with him prior to this, but um, if there's anybody who is sort of an emotional center of this film, I think it's Abbott's character. Colin Tate is sort of meant to be a bit of a dick. So Colin Tate is kind of a dick, and we learn the various ways in which he's a dick kind of by proxy through how the different characters are reacting to, uh, to, to, to Voss, or Toss, as she's called at various points, inhabiting his body. And without a complete set of his memories, it seems. I mean, she seems to know more than she should if she's just a puppeteer, uh, you know, working the strings. But she it definitely seems like she has some access to, to Colin's knowledge. Uh, but it's not entirely clear. That might also be because Colin is exerting control at different points. The movie keeps it nice and vague as to who is... As, as to who's steering the ship over the course of this. At least that was my interpretation of it. Well, she does a bit of a recon... Um... Uh, of his mannerisms and his uh, vocal style. She does, but it's very basic. It's just, uh, you know, being able to talk in the same way. And of course, uh, his girlfriend, who is the target, uh, Ava, Ava Pars, played by Toppins Middleton, um, who's one of the targets anyway, uh, immediately picks up on something being a bit off with this character. So, which is fine. Uh, you know, the the, uh, the two the two targets are, of course, Ava Parse, who is uh, the daughter of John Parse, uh, played by Sean Bean, the character uh, who is the CEO of a company called Zuthru, uh, which is a huge data mining company of some sort. Now, Daniel, were you able to did did you get any sense of what exactly he was doing when when as Colin uh, Voss actually goes to work on the floor uh, in I guess what is mo- the most basic job at um, at this place and and does the job at this company for a little while? What ex- what exactly she was doing? My interpretation of what was going on in that scene was he was looking through people's webcams for specific products to sell to them. So in his case, he was looking at window treatments. So he was looking at what kind of blinds uh, the, these people had on their homes. Uh, so that they could then sell that to advertisers to market. Spot on. And uh, some other details in that scene. They're in a floor where they've basically got 40 people crammed into barely any space and standing desks. They're wearing VR headsets, and they're in a sort of virtual workspace where where what they're seeing is they have a monitor in front of them and, and a rollerball yeah. mouse. But what they're actually doing is standing with a bunch of other people on a, on a very sort of dehumanizing floor. They've got headphones on, and if they take too long watching whatever, uh, you know, everything from just random videos, uh, you know, I think some of it is people's webcams, some mm-hmm. of it is YouTube. At one point, it's a couple having sex, and he is just identifying what's uh, what patterns of drapes and stuff that he sees there. Yeah, uh, one detail that I think is implied in that scene, but is not explicitly stated, is that is the mere necessity for characters like this to exist is because machine vision 
is not the sort of problem that we've cracked in, ter- in terms of AI research yet. It's it's a it's a very difficult thing. Immediately identifying a what part of the scene constitutes blinds as opposed to you know sheets or the floor or the carpet. Like you can give an algorithm a set of rules that uh, that help with that, but you might be teaching it to identify something else in the scene without realizing it. Um, the way that, that artificial neural networks work, they might be solving the problem in a way that is inexplicable to you. I remember at one point, uh, there are many examples of this on Janelle Shane's blog, AI Weirdness, but uh, but what, um, but AI apparently loves seeing giraffes because if you, if you have a lot of, there are just a lot of photos of giraffes on, uh, you know, African savannas on grassy hills. So if you show an if you show an, a machine vision algorithm just a grassy hill and ask it to identify what it sees there, there's a better than there's, there's a better than decent chance it will mistakenly think there's a giraffe in that picture. If there's any even slightly giraffe-like feature, like a tree in it, so the idea that they would still have humans doing this sort of grunt work is not only a very honest peek into how AI is actually integrated with the IT industry right now, it seems like the sort of thing that is likely to persist into the future because getting a machine vision algorithm that can that can do a, a really weird and esoteric task like that really, really reliably, it's just cheaper to pay a human being to do it. So even if you're paying them nothing and you have a very low opinion of them, as we, as we learned from uh, Sean Bean in the, uh, in the course of meeting him, what did you think of this Sean Bean performance? It was fine. I've never wanted a Sean Bean character to die more quickly. I had a lot of problem with the characters in this film. Like, they were just so basic, and I just didn't care about any of them. Like, John Pars is essentially, I guess, evil Bezos, or good Bezos, depending or on Peter how Thiel. you feel about Bezos. <laughs> like, it's fine. He's like, he's a big tech wizard who doesn't seem to care about people and is a total dick to uh to our boy uh you know colin here but i didn't care yeah i transcribed the first part of his speech here uh where he he addresses his assembled masses at his at his house party and he says walter benjamin once wrote that boredom is the dream bird that hatches the egg of experience and i was just in that moment i'm just like i want this character to die <laughs> and he just continues being insufferable for every moment after that it's really i mean it's a crackerjack performance from sean bean but it's obviously one he could do in his sleep i mean being an insufferable character is something he's very good at i had a couple of, I, I had a few problems with i guess the the whole concept of this uh you know possession assassination trade one she tazia spends very little time researching her subject so like, why even bother with the pretense of uh, assuming the identity when she could just, like, take a job in the same place and then kill that target? Like, what, what's the point? If they're, if they're yeah. actually trying to mimic the person to gain some sort of, you know, insider uh, insight and, uh, I guess, access, what, 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 who cares? Like... I, I have thoughts on that, but they, they relate to the specific circumstances of this mission, which I think we'll want to get into spoilers for. So, um, because I think it, it has it has entirely to do with, you know, you, you keep saying, why not just send a drone? This seems overly complicated. Why not just why not just pay a goon to walk in and shoot them? I'm not wrong. It's because, well, you're not wrong that it's easy to kill somebody, but it, that is the entire central idea of this film is that these people are basically re- rewriting reality. I know. And what they need to do is tell me why that's better. 
because what they want is somebody to disappear from the world with no questions asked and and dis- disposing of a body, you know, sneaking in, killing somebody, disposing of a body, that just introduces all kinds of potential points of failure. And if you're trying to assassinate somebody powerful, which is what this organization apparently exists for, you don't want that. You don't want any chance of failure. What you want is what you want is neat and tidy. You want Lee Harvey Oswald and you want a single shooter with a simple theory. No, but somebody had to hire them. So there's someone who knows about that organization and knows what they do. Assumingly, there are contracts involved, which could be shown in a court of law. You, you really think that somebody's keeping receipts Everyone on keeps this? Receipts. Imagine going to the police with a story that... Because the story they have is somebody was somebody murdered somebody else often in front of multiple witnesses and there was a very clear reason why they did it or there was no reason whatsoever why they did it. But either way, the, the murderer is dead. Invariably, they always, they're always killing two people here. They're killing their target and they're killing yeah, the assassin. Yeah. So there's nobody left to ask questions. So if you were to try and tell this story, if there was a whistleblower with this organization trying to say, hey, there are these crazy mind assassins out there. One, you probably wouldn't get very far because they would just mind assassinate you. <laughs> and two, they would, there's just nobody in the world who's going to believe that story. But the tech had to exist. So, but the but technology has to exist to allow for this consciousness, you know, transfer. So, assume, I'm assuming people theoretically think this is possible. And it's not magic what they're doing. Yeah. So, someone could believe this because inevitably, like, someone's going to leak it out. It's not like everything that can happen is being weaponized for conspiratorial purposes here. I think that uh, I think that you raise a valid point insofar as any conspiracy theory can be debunked within your own head by just considering the number of people that would have to know about it and be active participants in it in order for the cover up to not fall apart. Cuz you have to you have to kick that the vessels to possess them, right? Seems that way, yes. Someone will probably see that at some point unless you're killing every buggy around them. That's the thing. They don't seem too broken up about about collateral damage. They seem happy to kill other people as well. So I, I don't know. I think that as long as they can pin it all on uh, on their, their subject and it fits into their narrative, it all kind of works. It just seems very silly to me. I think it's fine to come away with this and say that they didn't quite sell a world in which this technology could exist. But I don't know. As a thriller with a novel concept for sci-fi horror... I was kind of on board with this. This movie didn't really remind me of anything specific. It, it felt it felt pretty original mm-hmm. to me, and, and that's not nothing. So shall we go ahead and get into spoilers? Let's do it. All right. From here on out, spoilers for Possessor. So uh, my answer to your question as to how they had why they had to do it in this particular way, I think is because because they have to physically abduct their subject, the one who's going to actually be the killer, the possessee, the host, they may not have control over that person can't just walk directly over to the CEO's house and shoot him. That narrative doesn't make any sense. What they they want neat and tidy. They want no questions asked. So what they want is the scene at the party. They want him to get into a fight and get thrown out and then come back later for the murdering. It just seems like a lot of work. It works. They had somebody who was plausible. He had a pre-existing drug condition. He was clearly, you know, John ended up disrespecting him multiple times in front of other people, and clearly not for the first time. I mean, they they clearly do their research in advance of this, and the actual possessor doesn't have to do any of that. The possessor just has to be able to muddle through a few hours before the actual killing happens. And, uh, you know, it gets into some 
the more that we see this character doing over the course of possessing uh, Colin's Colin's body, the, just the more questions I have. I mean, having sex with a girl with uh, with Colin's girlfriend purely optional. That didn't need to happen. Oh, but she was in there, Ava. Not Ava was hot. Yeah, I mean, it was. It's one of these uh, like, oh, this this person's just exploring all possible facets of this existence, and also is a complete sociopath. You know, we we meet her husband and child, uh, Michael, uh, played by uh, played yeah, by yeah. Kiefer Sutherland's half brother Rossif. Uh, true story, and uh, and we meet uh, we meet Ira, played by Gage Graham Arbuthnot. And what do we say about the family, Voss? Well, they don't seem very suspicious of their uh, wife and uh, mother disappearing for days on end all the time. She travels for work. That's the explanation they got for it. And coming back disorienting and shitty and uh, like just small talk. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, we see her literally rehearsing small talk outside of her own apartment before she comes in there to actually make it happen. And she's separated from her husband, but they still seem to have a somewhat cordial relationship. They do have sex at the beginning, of the, near the beginning of the, of the movie. But she has moved out. They are separated. And Gerder suggests to her that it was because she believed it was that it was because Voss believed she was a threat to her family and that that was her idea. And she seems unsure if that was the case or not. I mean, in light of what happens at the end in which we learn that Gerder has kind of been driving her toward this outcome of liquidating her family so that she can kind of take over the reins as lead assassin here. Yeah, be the successor. Yeah. Do we think that any of that was true, or do we think that Gerder was kind of masterminding all of this? Like, it, it's left kind of ambiguous, I think. It's ambiguous. Um, my take on it was that Gerder was pulling those strings. She was playing on the fact that um, Tazia doesn't have perfect knowledge because she assumes other people's identity, and then she comes back and has to, like, remember who she is. So she was, she was like, you know, doing the classic. Oh, but you said this last Wednesday. Yeah, and as a uh, as a person with an unreliable memory, but in a job where you expect to have an unreliable memory, you're just going to play along because this is a person you trust. And why would she lie to you? Exactly. Um, what makes this whole sequence even more tragic, other than the mother murdering her child in graphic and cold blood <laughs> blooded terms um I, this was the uncut version of the film that we watched i don't know how much was in the cut version of the film but i'm gonna go ahead and guess that blowing out the back of a child's skull was not in that version of the movie um but that it's <laughs> yeah, in the, the child tech just explodes like a watermelon instead. oh yeah um and by the way, if you're, if you're going to ask if I was upset by that, no, I was far more upset by the child death that was uh, that was much less explained in uh, in Come Away than this one. What? He got hit by lightning. <laughs> he, he jumped in the water and he got struck by lightning. Yeah, just uh, it was it was vi- happened. But like people reacted to that, and it was it you know it felt it felt real to me in the moment. This it was just like all the graphic violence. My my it we've discussed this with respect to the Saw films before, but. When you have just characters' body parts ripping apart and exploding, my mind just shuts it off. I don't, I don't think of them as real people anymore. I'm like, ooh, I wonder how they made that happen. Like, I want, I wonder what parts of that the actor had to be present for. I wonder if that was CGI. I wonder mm-hmm. if that was a puppet. Like, I can't switch that part of my mind off that just knows nobody was actually harmed here. So, when Voss is completely unnecessarily jamming a fire poker into uh, into John's mouth and like chipping his teeth out gouging his eyeballs out i'm just like oh that's pretty gross but that's it i don't really react like it's real violence that i'm seeing it it, it doesn't register that way for me my thought i i, I don't like it that my, my thought was why am i going to see this why is Tasha such a shitty assassin that she can't just be clean and neat about things? Although she's not, a, she's not a shitty assassin. It's that this character has turned into a violent psychopath. No, she's definitely shitty. No, no, she, she's like you playing Assassin's Creed, where you just like hack <laughs> everything to death. Yeah. Like, you know, she, she's not, you know, 
why not just poison somebody's drink? And, like, if you're just trying to Too kill many them, questions, like, Daniel. Too many questions. It needs, no questions. It needs to be a horrific act of violence, and it needs to have a clear perpetrator, and no more complicated story than that. This guy wanted... Just set a bomb, then. Like, there's so many other ways to kill than, like, hack somebody to death with a butcher knife. Like... They want all of their assassinations to look like crimes of passion, and because t- because Voss enjoys that sort of killing so much, she ends up gilding the lily a little bit. Instead of just shooting him with the gun that she's provided with, she ends up grabbing the nearest sharp object and slicing off bits of him. I get the narrative choice. It just doesn't appeal to me at all. Yeah, it felt... I am with you that it felt indulgent. It felt like this is the Cronenberg family's desire to just show as much grotesquerie as possible. And that is fair. Like, is that their fetish? You know, Tarantino likes feet? Like, are they, do they just get off on body horror? Some of the body horror in this film felt like it at least served an illustrative purpose. Beyond just watching people injure each other in graphic terms, the transformation sequence where... Uh, where Voss becomes Colin Tate, you know, they could have visualized that in any number of different ways. And the way that they did it was with sort of a ru- like rubber masks. And I think they might have yes. used something physical. They might have actually melted something. Like, this could have all been CGI. I don't know. But it looked very real. And what it looked like was sort of a rubberized mask uh, kind of forming and then melting away and then reforming. And I don't know. This could have been real footage that was reversed. I mean, this looked like it could have been done in camera with the right, with the right effects here. And it, it looked... It looked pretty gross, but it was also just kind of spooky, and it really it, it embodied this idea of the sort of dueling control over the character. I mean, later on we see when they're having their sort of psychic battle. Uh, you know, we we see Colin Tate, we see Christopher Abbott. Yeah, on the astral plane. Yeah, they're entering the room here, and they're trying to uh, they're trying to straighten out uh, what, whatever's happening inside of Colin Tate's head. We've got that guy Eddie there, um, who's running the running the little gizmo into Colin Tate's brain, trying to trying to restore control for Voss. But what we see is another version of him come in and come in and strangle her. And we see there they shift places, and at various points it's Andrea Riceboro there, and at various points it's Christopher Abbott there. At one point he crushes her face, but her head just disappears into a rubber mask at that point, which he then puts on. And that is without saying a word, we know what is happening in that scene. Colin is now ruling his own body. He's now pushed this this mind assassin aside, and he's ready to go fuck some shit up. <laughs> Yeah, I, I thought that was clever. I thought it was silly, but I thought it was clever. But it was an instance of disturbing imagery being used to serve a narrative purpose, so I appreciated it. There was quite a lot of that, actually, in this film, apart from just the grotesque assassinations, which themselves did serve a, at least a character purpose with respect to establishing what sort of, what sort how, what kind of fucked up Voss is. I don't know, it, it all kind of worked for me. It was pretty disturbing, and I definitely found myself rolling, rolling and then gouging out an eyeball over it, but it didn't really bother me. Well, they ultimately failed. Tasia fails because um, your your boy Sean Bean survives the assassination attempt. Yeah, and I mean that is an instance where we see the effects of her grotesque uh, assassination attempt. There is that you know one she left the guy alive, and two she you know we see the grisly injuries that she inflicted on him, looking a good deal more realistic because it was done with you know makeup and facial prosthetics on Sean Bean mm-hmm. and an eye patch. But I think that's a deliberate irony that is at work in this film is that and, and I think that was something that was running throughout the film. That's kind of what made the whole thing work for me is that Gerder is grooming Tasia to become the new superior mind assassin here. But she's fucked up. She's nearing the end of her usable life in this trade. She's doing unnecessary things. She's doing dangerous things. She's indulging herself when she's in these people's bodies. And also she can't finish the job because part of the job is putting a bullet in your head when you're done with it. Making sure that the the host is brain dead and she can't do that. Yeah, 
He can't do that, and I don't know if that's like the host fighting back, like fighting the uh, assassination, like fighting the suicide off, or that she just can't pull the trigger. We on we see multiple characters chastising her for not being able to do that, and what I took from that was that one, she has been able to do it successfully before. And two, she's kind of losing her edge, losing her nerve. She's not able to do that anymore. Or at least her she's not as strong with her possession as she used to be, so the host is able to fight back. It's kind of like a post-hypnotic suggestion. You can hypnotize somebody to dance like a chicken, but you can't hypnotize them to kill themselves. The The urge to, mm-hmm. towards toward preserving your own life is too strong for that. So, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, <laughs> This whole thing kind of worked for me, Daniel. It's, it's pretty grotesque, but I, I really... I enjoyed it for specific values of enjoyed. So you liked how Gerger uh, possessed the child at the end? It's pretty fucked up, but uh, it was pretty clear by the end that Gerger wanted the family out of the way. I mean, she she was definitely urging Voss to not go back to her family, and I think the separation was meant to serve that role, but she realized, okay, as long as they exist, this is going to be one thing holding her back, so I've got I've to get her to kill them. <laughs> it makes her much more disturbing and diabolical in retrospect, but I, yeah, I thought it worked. Yeah, so at the very end, when she's uh, recounting the items, you know, she, you know, shows uh, no remorse towards the butterfly she killed as a kid. I'm like, oh, I get it. She's chaotic evil now. Yeah, Yay. pretty much. Uh, I don't know. Would I? Would I see a? Uh, what, would you see a sequel to this film, or have we have we gone no. to as dark of a place as we possibly can? No, I, I have no interest in seeing another version of this film. Well, they're monsters, so. The only thing that could that a sequel to this film could be is somebody coming along to slay the monsters, or you know maybe there are competing fashion, factions of these these mind assassins that are fighting each other. I mean, you end up getting into sort of altered carbon territory where once you can kind of swap bodies, all of a sudden all bets are off as far as storytelling goes. You can do bizarre things with the casting, you can do bizarre things with the storytelling. Life and death kind of lose all meaning, and you can kind of just do whatever you want. So You need to have good characters for something like this to work, and the problem that I had was I didn't, I didn't know any of the characters well enough to really identify or care about them. So all I was seeing was this grotesque violence, and that is a hard pass for me. I mean, the people being victimized here, the people who are being made into the mind assassins, we have two characters fundamentally. That are, I guess three if you count Ira, but um, we have two characters, Colin Tate and we have Holly Bergman at the beginning. And I think in both cases... Mm-hmm. It's two pretty sol- it's two very good performances from Gabrielle Graham and from Christopher Agreed. Abbott here, um, because and in particular Christopher Abbott's case because we get to watch him regain control a couple of times and and realize the horror of what he's done and also think that he did it himself. Uh, you know, he thinks that he killed his girlfriend. He thinks that he that he attacked his girlfriend's father. I mean, it's 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 all. It's all very disturbing, but it's also rewriting his story and forcing him to live with that. Like. Again, it just makes what they're doing that much more monstrous. Like, that guy doesn't just get to deal with the horror of what's happened. He gets to deal with the belief that he did it himself. Not just that his own hands did it, but that he did it and that he blocked out the reason why mm. or something. So, yeah, I don't know. It's all. Anytime a horror movie can just disturb me conceptually like that in a way that feels original, I'm kind of on board with it. It follows hit me in a similar way of like, oh, this is. You can never be safe from this. And it's it's real fun. Oh, fucked yes. Up. The, the infamous STD demon. <laughs> yes, the STD demon. I really liked this film. Uh, I think that uh, I'll be curious to see what else Brandon Cronenberg has to has to do here. I will fully expect to be physically uh, repulsed by it, though. Yeah, I don't know. I like to try to present a different type of assassination film. I just I didn't care about the company. It didn't make conceptual sense as to why you would go this route over something cheaper. I, I get in all the points you make. I get why you've made those points. I understand why a crime of passion is not going to be investigated the same way as something that's suspicious. 
I just, it just didn't work for me. I just didn't care about any of it. Christopher Abbott was good uh, uh, portraying a character, especially when he's, you know, fighting back. But he goes to the, he goes to Tazia's house and he's like, I'm going to kill your family. And she's like, do it. And I'm like, there's no tension here. Who cares? Yeah, I mean, it, it becomes a game of, oh, well, she called your bluff. So are you, like, she's turned you into a monster. Are you going to be the monster that she turned you into? Like, yeah, I don't know. Why wouldn't they come out with a different way to take somebody out as opposed to, like, you kill yourself? Like, why wouldn't it just be, like, the little device in your head explodes? That's <laughs> not a bad idea, actually. But, well, I don't, I don't know. The If they're putting an implant into somebody's head, it seems like maybe that would leave some evidence that they've been tampered with in some way. <laughs> I think, like, they said something like it dissolves, oh, yeah. but, like, wouldn't there still be, like, a wound in the top of your skull? Like, I don't know, like... You know, it's the, it's the big lie that is necessary for this movie to work, is that they are able to sell... That they're able to sell the big lie to the world, the big lie of the assassination, that they didn't control that person, that person was in control of themselves, as we all are, so... And really, this would break reality, wouldn't it? Because you could never be sure of why anyone was doing anything. Like, the mere existence of this technology is a threat to the entire world order here, because you can't trust anyone anymore. This is something that, uh, yeah, Martha Wells writes a whole series of books called The uh, the Murderbot Diaries. And uh, one continuing theme in there is that artificial life forms, the main character is a robot. The main character, the robot, knows I can't trust any other robot. Full stop. I can never trust any other robot. It do- it's not a matter of wanting to trust them. It's not a matter of them convincing me that they're trustworthy. It's because they are programmable, I can't trust them. Can you imagine living in a world where every other human felt that way to you? I mean, that is, that's kind of what this movie presupposes here. Is it like This technology existing in the shadows is horrifying enough. This technology existing in the open is much, much worse. <laughs> So, I don't know, this movie made my mind wander into some pretty dark places. And again, that is what a horror movie should do. Did you ever see the movie uh, Existence? No, I haven't. Now, that is a David Cronenberg film, and it is about virtual worlds and virtual reality. And it came out the same year as uh, a slightly bigger film on that subject, The Matrix. Uh, so it's not one that that I think as many people have seen. But Jennifer Jason Lee is in that as well as a VR games developer. And they, they sort of spend some time in various virtual video game worlds, but the way that the video game constructs work in this reality, it's not like a console that's made of plastic and metal. It's a console that's made of flesh and bone, and you, like, plug it into a port in your spine, and it's very, you know, you're it, when, you're, when you're in the uh, virtual world, you're firing guns that are made of flesh and bone and firing clips made of teeth and... Like that's the sort of shit that you can expect with David Cronenberg is just a lot of, a lot of grotesque manipulation of life. This fe- this felt like dude, something different. Dude's got a weird fetish. Oh yeah, it's very strange. This felt like something different. It was more just you can't trust yourself and you can't trust the world. So uh, yeah, he-, he carved out a unique voice for himself. I will give him that, and I will probably be checking out what this ca- what this uh, director has to do going forward. And you will not, is what I'm getting here. I, if you sign me up uh, for the podcast, then I will watch it, but I don't have to like it. It's fair. Uh, I will warn you before recommending another film that it is a Brandon Cronenberg film, just so you have some idea what to expect. This one, did, did mean, you even I, watch a trailer also, for it, or did you know anything about no, it? No, I don't even look at the poster. That's how I do these films. I go completely cold. Fair. Any final thoughts about Possessor? 
Uh, I think drones would have worked a lot better. No, um, I liked uh, a lot of the concepts they introduced. Like the idea of, of possession of bodies is neat. Like obviously, like like to your point, you could never trust anybody again, uh, especially because they don't seem that no one ever sees anybody else getting like you know yanked off the street, thrown into the back of a van, and disappear. Yeah. Apparently that goes off flawlessly. Yeah, this feel this feels like the sort of thing that would eventually have to see the light of day just because of the number of people involved. But it would take a while, and you would have a lot of crazy conspiracy theories happening before before anybody ever believed it. So yeah, I I thought the violence was uh, too much for me, but I mean it was at least like. I guess if you're into that, satisfying. Like, ooh, the the evil tech guy got completely, like, wrecked. (laughs) Like, I guess there's a satisfaction in that. Um, I didn't know what the lawyer did to get stabbed 20 sometimes, but apparently bad things. I I felt bad for Ava. She didn't deserve to get shot. I guess uh, I I thought there was a lot of good ideas in her dis. I guess for me... I had issues with the, the the overall world that this takes place in. Like, I would have questions, right? Like, there are things about this company that just didn't quite make sense to me. <laughs> uh, and like I said, I'm not a big fan of the ultraviolence. But I don't know, like, if this is the guy's first film, it's actually pretty good. It's not his first film, actually. I thought it was going in, but he made it, He made another film called Antiviral uh, back in 2012. God, oh, oh, that's right. You said that earlier. Yeah, sorry. Um, I, I would be interested to see something else that he produces uh, or, or directs. Um, like he has a he has a talent for it. All of the you know battles in the you know astral plane. You know, in terms of like the the images and memories coming flooding back. Like that was well done. It was well shot. Like it was it wasn't confusing to the point where I didn't know what was going on. Like clearly it was very deliberate and it made sense to me. Um, and I and I thought it was like visually it was very interesting and a lot of the set pieces were pretty interesting too. Uh, like that first scene with Holly, like like you mentioned earlier, was actually really like that building was cool. I was like, oh, I, I would go to this. Yeah, it was lovely and interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I I, I may be giving Brandon Cronenberg too much credit here for. Uh, what metaphor he was going for here, because I found the sci-fi world pretty engrossing, but he seemed clearly, like, at one point, Colin Tate, who was apparently in control of his own body, is talking to Michael Voss, and he gives this entire monologue about uh, about cat poop parasites, and uh, the idea of your wife, like, do you know, have you ever thought of your wife as a predator? You know, the idea of her scooping the litter box one of these days, which, you know, Michael never cleans the litter box, which is why they're separated, obviously. But mm-hmm. uh, Clearly. Um, the idea of those uh, those sort of toxoplasmosis uh, parasites getting in your head and making you do things. And this is something that I think if you if you hadn't gone into this movie knowing that that is uh, the idea of, of parasites and cat poop messing with human behavior and causing mental illness in people, uh, and also sort of being the basis for the cat lady, quote-unquote, uh, stereotype of the crazy older lady who has a lot, of, a lot of cats. There may be a physical basis for that, a sort of, uh, a sort of neurological dementia caused by, these, by this parasitic infection. I think if you hadn't gone into the movie knowing all of that, you would have found that monologue baffling. So my question for you, Daniel, was... Did you find that monologue baffling, or did you have any of that knowledge going in? I've heard of that before, but as the scooper of poop in uh, in my household, like I'm not afraid of no damn parasite. Ain't gonna take me over. I wash my hands very, very thoroughly every time. Yeah, I was. I always wash my hands afterwards. I'm not eating the poop while I'm scooping it, so I'm pretty sure I'll be fine. Yeah, but uh, so I think maybe that was what uh, was the conceptual basis for this film. I read I read up on antiviral and apparently uh, sort of fever dream that Brandon Cronenberg had while while he was under the throes of a serious viral infection was the basis for that horror film. Wait, wait, wait. So, so the basis for this the, these uh, you know uh, possessor assassins are he was scooping his litter box, fantasizing yeah. about murdering people grotesquely, and he's like, 
what if <laughs> a cat pooped in this box and then it got into my brain and then I killed my Somehow wife? Somehow less disturbing than what we actually saw uh, realized in this film, yeah. <laughs> and what if there's a whole organization of people who eat cat poop and then kill other the cat poop core? <laughs> <laughs> they put something in your brain, it dissolves into a little cat poop souffle. and There you go. That's a movie I could get behind, because that makes sense. Well, whether I'm giving the movie too much credit or not, you know, you, you mentioned you had questions about how this company worked. I had those questions, too, but sci-fi worlds, I'm willing to give a great deal of latitude when it comes to world building. As long as I sort of presume that there are some answers to those questions that the, that the creators might have had in mind, I'm kind of willing to give them a pass. Whatever the characters treat as normal, I assume is normal for them. So, um... Yeah, I have questions about how they go about it, but if they're doing this for the 50th time, they're just becoming more violent and psychopathic as they go. I tend to assume that what we're seeing is just a typical mission for them. There is nothing special about this, so everything we see happen is representative. Well, this particular mission was a big deal because they were going to use the leverage of the new CEO who called in the hit yeah. and, and use that to control this data mining company. So I guess a sequel would have to do with this uh, Assassin's Guild also running a data mining company. Yeah, so, I mean, it sort of seeds the idea that this that with this technology, they want to not just manipulate reality. They want to they want to be the ones ordering the assassinations. They, they don't just want to be guns for hire anymore. They want to rule the fucking world. Yeah, it's Umbrella Corps. If you had this power, you could rule the fucking world, so. And sell window treatments. Yeah, so many window treatments. And that's really what it's all about, making sure that people can't see through your windows as you're uh, as you're possessing people's bodies. Also, like, if you have a webcam like we all do now in the Zoom era, fucking cover Take it up. Take a lesson from Jeffrey Tubin and keep your dick away if you're in front of a webcam. <laughs> like, I have a little cover for my webcam. I think my webcam is always on. Even though I know it's not, I can say it as if practice, it is, yeah. it's always on. And I turn down the light. I have a desktop, which uh, if I'm not using my webcam, I physically disconnect it. So, And my laptop, if I'm not using the webcam, I just I, I, treat, it, I treat it as if it is on. Uh, so, yeah. And, it's a good and practice. I, I close the laptop completely if I, if I need to get dressed or whatever. So Right, right. I mean, like, how, how often have you masturbated in front of your, like, your webcam? No comment. Uh, but I did uh, the cameras on my phone. Like, your phone has a camera pointing in each direction. You know, you treat... Oh, yeah, I definitely... <laughs> I definitely make sure that if I'm, I'm getting dressed, that the camera's not pointing at yep. me. <laughs> yeah, which is which is tough because you know sometimes I'm uh, you know while I'm while I'm drying off, I might be checking Twitter. I make sure I'm not pointing the camera to mirror. Yeah, like me too, me too. And then I have to think like, well, I guess I'm a dick pic everywhere, exactly. so that's great. Like, I guess I guess my thought is, I know the 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 chances of being hacked are really minuscule. Like, who's gonna go after me? Who cares? But I don't want to take the chance <laughs> that it will somehow accidentally happen. So I just think, you know, just for, for this world that uh, Mr. Cronenberg came up with, just make sure your webcam's off if you're not and using it. And you will it. not have mind assassins come into your house. <laughs> All right. If you have any feedback on our discussion of Possessor, feel free to email us at filmwonknet at gmail.com or abduct us and stick a stick a probe into our brains and uh, read the feedback off to ourselves. You don't have to do that. Just give me 50 bucks. I'll kill Glenn. Don't worry about it. Thank you for tuning in to filmwonk.net and have a good night. I'd sacrifice anything come what might for the sake of having you near in spite of a warning voice. That comes in the night and repeats, repeats in my ear Don't you know, little fool, you never can win Use your mentality, wake up to 
reality But each time that I do Just the thought of you Makes me stop before I begin Cause I've got you Under my skin Under my skin 